Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now, please enjoy our sermon at Church on the Hill. So shockingly enough, we are in the book of Mark. You guys know this because it's like our 24th week. But before we get into Mark, I have a question that I want to start out with with you guys. And the question is this. Has there ever been a time where you look back at your life and some of the decisions or the choices that you made, and you think to yourself, that probably wasn't the most brilliant choice I've ever made? When you look back and go, huh, that's not going to make the highlight real. That's probably not the smartest thing I've ever done. Anyone? Thank you. At least some of you gave some hands. The rest of you are going to lie about it, which is fine. But here's what we're going to do. I don't have any of those stories, so some of you that raise your hand, you're going to come up and share, right? Yeah, you guys are laughing because you're like, no, we know you well enough. you got a whole library of those stories. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to be the one to tell the embarrassing story this morning because, sadly, I have a lot of the stories where you go, huh, in hindsight, that doesn't make me out to be the smartest individual in the world. And this one, it makes it safer if we go back a ways because then you guys might still listen to me. So we're going all the way back to, like, late high school, early college. I don't really remember. And a group of friends and I are all hanging out and sitting around together, just whatever, bored, doing whatever else. And one of us, I don't remember how it came up. Somehow the idea of riding a bull came up, okay? And so the conversation topic for a bunch of not that smart, early college, late high school kids was, do you think you could ride a bull? And all of us started going back and forth, and then clearly we decided, because we're so intelligent, and we didn't make the traditional dumb choices, we had like our own brand of bad choices, And so we decided, well, there's only one way to find out. We have to go try. Now, we were at least slightly intelligent and realized when you ride a bull, there's like a chute and handles and vest and all this special stuff to protect you. We don't have any of that. So let's be wise and take it down a notch. And the goal became, let's see who can ride a cow for the longest. And I know you guys are like, what, do you live in Texas? This is just in Morgan Hill. It's 20 minutes south. It's where I grew up. I went to Live Oak. Don't worry. And we actually went to Live Oak. And Live Oak has a 4-H club, which is like the agricultural club. And they have livestock there. And so we decided clearly we should go to Live Oak's livestock area, let the cow out, and then ride the cow, see who can do it the longest. So we go in, and we open up the gate. And the cow comes out. And it just so happens Cows are not like horses, and they don't let you just climb on their back and ride them. Weird, right? And another thing for you guys to know, a little biology animal lesson here, is if you have an animal that has eyes on the front, you have yourself a predator, usually. If you have eyes on the side, you have yourself a prey animal, and prey animal pretty much always respond the same when they're startled. They run for their lives, and they freak out. That's just what they do. So cow, eyes on the side, is we're trying to get on this thing, not playing our game. 
And so we decide as brilliant individuals, okay, here's how we're going to do it. There's a big chain link fence that's like eight feet, fire, eight feet high around this whole field. So we're going to get the whole group of us and we're going to force the cow into the corner. And then we're going to have a guy on top of the fence in the corner and he's going to drop down on the cow. Game starts at that point. So we do this multiple times. But what we forget is, remember, prey animal, eyes on the side, really observant. And so, like, the first one that happens, he's from eight feet in the air on this fence. He goes to jump on the cow and just belly flops on the ground because the cow was gone, just gone. And we're so smart, we proceed to do this multiple times. Some of us kind of get on the cow, nothing really spectacular, nothing to brag about. We try multiple times. Now, to make things better, we leave and then decide, because, again, we're so smart, we should do that again. So a few nights later, we go back. We don't go to the exact same cage area, which turns out to be a problem because we open it up and we get the animal out of there. And this time, the animal runs to the very center of this corral pin area. And like a movie, it turns and looks at us, takes its hoof and scrapes its hoof a few times. And it's dark, but we're like, hmm, not normal for a cow. So we do a little research and we figure out we just let a bull out. And to make things better, we decide, this is divine. Now we get to see who can ride a bull. And so we use the same plan. Okay, we're going to pin the cow into the, or the bull into the corner, and then you have to jump on its back, and we're going to see who can ride it the longest. So we start chasing after the bull, but it turns out the bull wanted to play a different game, and it turns around and chases us. And this changes everything immediately. So most of the group runs this direction, and the bull doesn't chase us. But one of my friends, who thankfully is fast, is running this direction, and the bull has chosen, chosen that he is the one. And so the bull is chasing him, and we have our own moment of Benny the Jet Rodriguez pickling the beast. And my buddy's running as fast as he can, and this bull is fast, and it's getting much closer. And we're at that moment where we're like, oh, no, this could be really bad. And there's a gate on the end of this area. It's one of those gates that has those big middle pipes, and there's like six or seven or whatever, and it's chained up to the fence. And he runs over, and he jumps onto the fence. And as soon as his body weight, like his upper body weight, is over the fence, and he's pretty much clear of this bull, the bull slams the gate. And he's on top of the gate. So our friend becomes a human projectile just flying through the air. And it was incredible. <laughs> And the thing is, he hits the ground. And all things considered, from having almost died from a bull, we are in pretty much the best-case scenario. He's got scratches, a few bruises, he's bumped up a little, but he's not dead and nothing's broken. And so for us, we're like, man, that was best-case scenario. And here's the reason why I tell all of you this story. And I know you guys are like, Phew, thankfully, you have a point. But here's the reason why. He went home. And he had scrapes and everything all over him. And his parents were like, hey, what were you doing? He was like, nothing, I just fell. And then I went home and all of our friends went home. And I was there, all of us know this. We all got asked, hey, what were you guys up to? Or what did you do the past few nights? Or why is this person all scraped up? And the answer for every single one of us was, eh, nothing. And the point is this. There was a common theme for all of us. And the common theme is this. We didn't tell anyone. Why did we not tell anyone? 
because there was no way to redeem that story to make us look like we had brains in our head. Like, if you tell that story and it's a cow, maybe you could get away with justifying it. When you let a bull out and decide, oh, yeah, we're going to ride a bull, there is no way for you to redeem that story and make it look like you have any sort of brain in your head at all. And it just paints you in a terrible light. And so what did we do? We didn't tell anyone. And with that in mind, I want us to think about that as we get into this passage, because that's a question that we're going to ask. And we are in Mark chapter 14, verse 66. And Scott talked about this some last week. If you guys don't realize this, we are now to the end of Mark. And as Scott talked last week, I talked this week, we talk on Good Friday and we talk on Sunday. There's a lot of overlap here because the end of Mark really focuses in on the end of Jesus' life, which makes sense because we are now dealing with the most important event in all in, of all of human history. And so there's going to be some overlap. And if you guys were here last week, what Scott was talking about was in the garden, when Jesus tells his disciples, he says, all of you are going to betray me. All of you are going to completely desert me. And Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, I will never leave you. Never will I leave you. And then he takes it a step farther and he says, Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will not leave you. And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And so we fast forward and we pick up this story in Mark chapter 14, verse 66. And it says, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered The word of Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. And what I want us to take a look at here is what's actually going on for Peter. Because I think we can miss to an extent what's actually taking place. We've been in the book of Mark for 24 weeks, and so I hope you guys remember this. But Mark is writing from the source of Peter. Peter is the one giving Mark all the information and all the stories. Mark is a companion of Peter. So Peter is the one giving this information to Mark so Mark can make this account of Jesus. But the source is Peter. And so I want us to remember what's actually taking place here because what we have is in Peter's life, Jesus came to him. And he meets him for the first time, and he's a fisherman on the shoreline, and he does these incredible miracles, and Peter gets his mind blown, and then he goes, Peter, I want you to follow me, and Peter follows Jesus. And in the time of following him, his life is transformed more than he ever could have imagined. Over and over, Jesus does things that absolutely blows his mind. He shows off so many different things that Peter multiple times goes, you are the Messiah, You're the one that we've spent generations waiting for. You're the one that all of human history has been pointing to. I now know you are the one. 
And Jesus gives Peter a life that he never thought he could have. He gives him a purpose he never ever imagined. He gives him love. He gives him an experience over and over again that had to be more than Peter ever, ever could have fathomed. And then they get to the garden. And Jesus says, you're all going to deny me. And Peter goes, Jesus, I will never deny you. Jesus, if it costs me my life, I will die for you, but I will not deny you. And then Judas comes, and he does what Judas does, and the soldiers take Jesus, and they take him into the city through the gate, and they lead him to the Sanhedrin, and he's in there at the Sanhedrin, and Peter is sitting there at this fire. And from the pressure of just a servant girl, he denies the first time. And by the end, he is literally sitting there going, I swear to you, I do not know this man. And the thing that stands out to me that I don't think we catch on to is this. Who else is there with Peter? No one. All of the disciples, all of the other crew of Jesus has completely abandoned him. He is the only one of the Jesus followers that is there. And so the question we come back to that I think is so important is, Peter, why did you tell the story? Peter, this is the worst look you're ever going to have. Peter, you betrayed the Messiah. You proclaimed him Messiah, and hours before you said that you would never, ever betray him. You even took it to the point of saying you would die with him, and then hours later you betrayed him. Why did you tell the story? You're the source, Peter. You told Mark. You let Mark put it in the gospel. Why is it there? And I think we get a very clear answer to it in Mark chapter 16, which Scott talked about last week also. But the women are going out to the tomb, to where Jesus was, and they get to the tomb and the stone's back and there's an angel there, and the angel says this to him, don't be alarmed, he said, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And Scott talked about the significance of this last week of remember to get Peter. Bring Peter with you and tell all of them to meet me in Galilee. And then we fast forward to John chapter 21 because that's where we get this meeting. So in John chapter 21, it says this, and this is after the crucifixion. It says, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Remember, the angel says, tell them to meet me in Galilee. So here's our meeting place. Again, he appeared to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which is James and John, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And we should start to have something trigger in our mind right now. If you guys remember back to the start of the book of Mark, or to the start, when we first meet Peter, Peter is there, and he has this experience where Jesus teaches the people, and then he says, Peter, can you take me out? I'm going to go fishing with you. And Peter's like, Jesus, I've been fishing all night, and we have not caught a single thing. And Jesus goes, yeah, I know. Let's go fishing. 
And he throws the nets out, and there are so many fish that other boats have to come. And Peter realizes at this point, I think this guy is actually who he says he is. And that's at the very start. This is the first meeting with Peter and Jesus that we get. And now, here in verse 4, we're going to get something similar, so we should be paying attention. It says, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. So Peter realizes, it's Jesus. And he's like, I'm going. And he dives in, and he swims over. And then you get this meeting with Jesus and the disciples after the crucifixion in Galilee on the beach. And Jesus is very hospitable and kind, and he's making them breakfast. So they come in, and they have breakfast together, and then it finishes in verse 15. says this, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And he goes on to say a few more things. And then he says, follow me. So he essentially takes Peter and he reinstates him. But here's the thing I want us to catch on to. How many times did Jesus ask Peter, do you love me? Three. How many times did Peter deny? Three. Who was there when Peter denied? Nobody. And I think what Jesus is saying here, that he's making absolutely clear is, Peter, I know exactly what you did. Hey, Peter, I know the words that you used. I know that it was just through the pressure of a servant girl that you betrayed me. Peter, I know that you went to the point of literally taking an oath, essentially saying, I swear to you, I do not know this man. And Jesus is making it very clear, Peter, even though you thought you were alone, I know every single thing that you did. And I think the message we're supposed to take from this too as followers, as children of Christ, or as followers of God, is this. He knows every single thing that you've done. Every single thing. The things that you've hidden away in a closet that you never want to tell anyone, that you will never bring to the light of day, the things that have you so bound up, the things that you've tethered your future to because you're so riddled with the guilt and the shame of it, he is sitting here saying, I know exactly what you did. For some of you, there's things in your life that you literally still think about probably on a daily basis. Some of you still lose sleep over the things that you've done. 
For some of you, you are so tethered to your past and to those sins that when you look out to your future, your future's a little less bright and the ceiling's not quite as high because you look at it and you go, I could never have all of that because of that. You're defining what's to come because of what you've done. And for a lot of you, you have it so hidden and so tucked away, and it's never seen the light of day. And Peter and Jesus and Mark are combining to come together to make it crystal clear. Jesus is making the claim, I know exactly what you've done. The most evil, dirty, vile, messed up, ugly things I know. And here's why this is so key. Scott used this quote last week also. But there's a quote from Tim Keller in the book Meaning of Marriage, and it says this, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. And what's the point that Jesus is making here? Hey, Peter, if you don't think I know what you did that night at the bonfire, then Peter, you're never going to believe that I actually accept you. If you don't know that I know everything you've done, then you're never going to believe that I fully accept all of who you are and I've forgiven all of you and I'm choosing to love all of you. You're going to believe it's just the you that you've put out for other people to see. And for so many of us in this room, I think this message has to come clear. If you don't believe that, you, that Jesus knows everything you've done, then you're never actually going to grab onto the fact that every single thing you've done has been forgiven. You're never going to understand that you're loved completely and fully as you are, not just the good you that you put forward and show other people. And Jesus is making this so clear through Peter here saying, I know every single thing. But here's the transformation that had to take place that changed all of Peter's life. Peter finally had to realize something. Peter had to realize that when he was sitting at the bonfire, he was staring at all the ways in which he had fallen short. And the only way he was going to get out to the shoreline in Galilee was to understand all the things that Christ had done, by him, done for him. To put that another way, as long as Peter was defining his life by his past and his shortcomings, he was always going to fall short. And it wasn't until he got to the beach and defined himself by Christ and his love and what he had done that Peter was finally able to be free of those things. And for so many of us, I feel like Jesus is sitting there going, you have tethered your life to your sins at the bonfire. You're defining your future and who you are by all of your shortcomings. And if you continue to stay there and define yourself that way, you will never experience the freedom and the love and the joy and the peace that I have in store for you. 
Because you keep defining yourself by your shortcomings instead of defining yourself and making your identity who I've made you as a child of God that's fully known and fully forgiven. Let me explain this a little bit more. When we first meet Peter, we're going back to that boat with the fish. It says that Peter had gone all night and not caught any fish, and he throws the net over the side, and there's so many fish that Peter has this realization, I think I actually know who you are. And it continues on, and he discovers this is the Messiah, but he begins to understand at that moment, you actually are the person you're claiming to be. And let me show you what Peter's first response is in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. It says, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Lord, get away. I'm a sinful mess. Please get away. And then we fast forward. And Peter decides to follow Jesus, and he spends the next years of his life. And honestly, a lot of what takes place is is Peter just proves that he was right. He proves over and over again, I am a sinful man. I'm really messed up. I keep doing the wrong thing. I keep falling short. I am a sinful man. And then we get him in the garden, and he just puts it on steroids, and he makes it so much worse. And he goes, you're the person that has given me everything in my life. You've given me more purpose, more value, more experiences than anyone or anything I ever could have imagined. And now I'm going to betray you from the pressure of a servant girl. And to make it worse, I'm going to swear that I've never even known you. And Peter goes through and he just puts on display, I am more sinful than you even thought. And it's not that it's okay. It's not that it was actually okay or it was just a mistake or he didn't really mean to or oops, it just happened a few times. It's that he is a broken mess. But Peter realizes something incredibly important. In John chapter 21... They throw the nets over. And there's so many nets in there, or so many fish in the net, they realize that's the Messiah. And Peter, fully aware that he is a broken, sinful mess, grabs his stuff, dives in the water, and gets to Jesus as fast as he possibly can. Because the boat wasn't going to get him there soon enough. What's the difference? Peter's finally quit defining himself as the sinful, broken man at the bonfire. And he's understood, Lord, you fully know me, you fully forgive me, and you fully love me. But for us in this room, and still we, until we start to define ourselves, is the fully forgiven, loved child of God. We are never going to be willing to dive in the water to get close to him. Because we just define ourselves as the sinful man and we say, Lord, get away from me. I'm just a sinful mess. And until we finally break free from that and let go of that bondage and let go of that guilt and let go of that shame and actually take on the identity of I am fully known, fully loved, 
and fully forgiven, we will never have a desire to be close. We will never want to jump in and just get to the arms of our Savior. So this morning as we close, if you feel like this passage has been talking to you, like these words were for you, we usually have some tangible steps we're going to give to you this morning. It's going to be different. What I want to do is simply this. If you feel like this is for you this morning, stay in your seat and do not leave this room until you've spent time with God to say, God, what is my next step? God, what do you want me to do to leave the bonfire and come meet you at the shoreline? What do you want me to do so I can actually have a desire to be close to you, to be wrapped up in your arms, and to have my identity be you instead of all the things that I've done in the past where I've fallen short? So we're going to give you guys time as the band is out and they play to just think through that and to ask God, God, what is it that you want me to do? so I can be close to you and have that relationship with you. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for how much you love us. Lord, I thank you for giving Peter the courage to tell his story. Lord, to allow him to understand that the only way he's ever going to be close to you is when he quits defining himself by his failures and he defines himself by you making him a new creation. Lord, I pray that for every single person in the room. Lord, we have all fallen short. None of it's okay. But it's not our story that matters. It's yours, Father. I ask that you would allow us to take on your identity instead of tethering ourselves to our past and the ways we've fallen short, Father. We love you so much, and thank you for loving us and knowing us fully, Lord. Amen.